Amazing grace. I'm so glad it covers me, aren't you? Without it, we'd be in deep, deep trouble. We come back one more time to Genesis chapter 3. As we begin to wrap up this short series asking the question, did God really say? No doubt we'll find ourselves coming back to this question periodically as different topics come up from from time to time. But this morning we want to ask the question, did God really say we're all born sinners? I mean, that doesn't seem fair at all. I wasn't there. What's that all about? I didn't do it. The third chapter of Genesis, in many ways, is the most defining chapter in all of Scripture because it explains why things are the way they are today, why there is what there is in our world, why there is decay, why there's disease, why there's dysfunction, why there's disintegration, and ultimately why there is death and judgment. Those things plague our entire universe. In fact, Scripture says all of creation even groans waiting for the day of redemption. They all come out of the event recorded here in Genesis chapter 3, the fall of mankind and his universe. But it also establishes the need for restoration, the need for regeneration, the need for salvation. So we find in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, who up to this point are sinless and living in a perfect environment. In that environment, there was no disease, there was no death, there was no decay, they were not present. None of those things even existed. They're living in this perfect environment which God has created, living in it without sin, if you can just imagine that, enjoying All the wonders of God's creation. But at some point, and we don't know exactly how much time passed from the sixth day of creation to the fall of man, but the first seven verses gives us an account of how that happened. It doesn't say exactly when, which day, how how much time had elapsed. And so one more time, I'm going to go back to Genesis 3 and read those first seven verses for us. Genesis 3, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you'll die. You'll not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, interesting word, She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So a couple of Sundays ago, we began talking and looking at the seducer. 
in verse 1. The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And we know that this creature was some sort of snake-like reptile or even a dragon because that's what Revelation tells us. It describes that creature as both snake and dragon. But what we do know is that whatever reptilian creature that was, Revelation tells us that it was Satan. It was Satan that took over this creature and used it for his purposes. And that's the only reason that the snake was more crafty, more intelligent than any other, than any other animal that God had created, because it was just an instrument for Satan. And the purpose for which he came, Satan came, was to seduce Eve into rebelling against God and to follow in his own footsteps. And then last week we looked at his very subtle, at least in the beginning, his subtle strategy using deceptions and lies because Jesus did tell us in the, in the New Testament that Satan is a liar and he is the father of all lies. And what he wants to do is to get people to believe that God doesn't tell the truth, certainly not the whole truth and nothing but the truth. He wants to get people to believe that they have the right to question God and the right to doubt that God has told, really told them all of the truth. And he seduces people into believing that God lies and that he, Satan, tells the truth. He first introduced the thought that God's word was subject to discussion and evaluation on our part. Did God really say? Huh. It gets you to thinking. Let's talk about that. And then that that God's goodness was subject to judgment. Did he really say you can't eat everything? Why would he do that? must be hiding something. Then he planted the idea that God can't be trusted. In fact, God is cruel. He's uncaring. God says you're going to die. You're not going to die. He just doesn't want you to be like him. He's actually very intolerant. He's restrictive in trying to keep you in bondage. Me, on the other hand, I'm all about freedom. I want you to be able to do anything you want to. One of Eve's biggest mistakes was that she entered into conversation with Satan. She started listening. She didn't take those words and those thoughts captive and make them obedient to God's Word. In Psalm chapter 1, verse, the first three verses, the first three verses in all of Psalms, it's a warning and an encouragement for us to keep, keep from falling and keep from falling into that same trap. It says, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers. Notice the progression in these verses. Referring to the believer, he uses the words walking, standing, and sitting. The most casual to the most intimate. Walking casually along, shooting the breeze with somebody. Standing, they've caught your attention and you're beginning to listen to them. Sitting, now you're really interested and you're sitting and discussing what they have to say. Then referring to the non-believer, the psalmist uses nouns from the most extreme to the somewhat benign, the wicked, 
worst of the worst, those who are flagrantly sinning, perhaps even into witchcraft and all that kind of stuff. The sinner, you know, openly living a, a, a lifestyle of sin and really not interested at all in changing and being obedient to God's word. And then mocker, uh, you know, one who scoffs at the whole religious thing. They don't really care um, about anything much. And the psalmist is saying, in your regular daily life, now don't misunderstand me, we're, talking about, we're not talking about evangelism or building a relationship in order to share the love of Christ, but in your regular daily life, we are to be, uh, if we are to be growing in the Lord and understanding His Word, we should not even casually be walking and talking with the wicked. We should certainly not stop and stand and and start discussing the concepts even of a sinner and begin contemplating what they have to say. And we we never should even sit and take time, even with the mockers, kind of the most benign, because the more time we give to those thoughts, the greater, greater access the seducer has to our minds and to our hearts. Instead, the psalmist goes on in verse 2 and 3, says, Blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night, continuously, all day long, pondering, thinking, meditating on his law, on his word. That person, he says, is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do, prosper. That's how we mature in Christ That's how we will know and stand firm on God's Word. But that was the downfall of Eve. She allowed access to the seducer to her mind and to her heart, and her delight was no longer on the law of the Lord. So she got lured into the idea that she could sit, sit along with this being she was talking to and to be in a position of judgment on what God had said, and that was the fall, that was the sin. Satan got her on that slippery slope and suddenly suggesting that in truth, he, Satan, is more devoted to her. He is more devoted to her freedom and to her joy, more devoted to her fulfillment and satisfaction than God is. And he is for freedom, God's for bondage. And that lie still dominates in Satan's world today. That strategy worked then. That strategy continues to work today. Now, it's actually very simple. When we sin, we have in that sin believed to some degree that we will get greater joy out of our own personal fulfillment by violating God's law than we would if we obeyed it, which means that we believe that lie, that God's promise of blessing for righteousness isn't really all that. We know better. And as soon as one does not completely, unreservedly, wholeheartedly trust in the wisdom and absolute goodness of God, as soon as one does not believe that the purposes and the commands of God are for our best and highest joy, sin has entered the heart. Because anything less than loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength is sin. Think about that. Something to ponder on. We then saw how Satan's subtlety switched from deception to blatant lies. And by lying to her, he called God a liar. 
Satan said the lie is that you have to pay for your sin. The lie is that you're going to die. You're not really going to die. Eve, the idea that there's judgment is just a big old lie of God's. There is no judgment. Folks, that's still the blatant lie that Satan wants the whole world to believe today. There is no judgment. I mean, that's a cry of today, isn't it? People can no longer say anything is wrong. As soon as you express your opinion that something is wrong, you're being what? Judgmental. No judgment is allowed. You see, if there is no judgment, then there's no guilt. That's how that works. And by this question, Satan switched the wrongness of the act by basically telling Eve there is nothing wrong with eating their fruit. There's nothing wrong with sin. What's wrong is that God said you can't do it. And you need to rebel against that. And, and we accuse those who say it's wrong of being bigots and phobic and work on silencing them so we don't have to listen and feel guilty. After all, it is God who is restrictive, mean, narrow-minded, and judgmental. We need to silence him. That's Satan's strategy. Question God. You have the right. Question him if his laws don't seem reasonable to you. Or if they seem restrictive, uh, needlessly restrictive and narrow and even bigoted. And if that's the case, then you have every right to doubt God's goodness, to doubt God's love, and certainly to doubt God's word. Be angry at and blame God. Silence him. That's Satan's strategy. When Eve believed the lie, the result was she did become like God to a certain degree, as he suggested, but only in that she knew both good and evil now from within. But it was different from how God knew it. And so the sin had already taken place in her heart, and sin entered into her nature. And the nature of mankind then changed forever. It became a fallen nature. It became a sinful nature. Again, it wasn't the eating of the fruit that was a sin. This is not one of Aesop's fables. This is not Snow White with a poison apple. It was a moment that, the first, that she first distrusted God that catapulted her and the, the world into sin. How many young people have left the church across the nation? We've been talking about it in our spiritual growth, growth class. The younger generation that has departed, the church, uh, departed from the church. It was when they began believing that same lie that God is not really good and he's restrictive and therefore began to distrust his word. So from the seducer to his strategy, we now come to the seduction today. The seduction. At this point, Eve has already sinned by not loving God with all of her heart, soul, mind, and strength. She, she's now sinned in her mind. She's distrusting God, distrusting his goodness, thinking he's narrow, thinking he's harsh. Um, she's changing his word. That sound familiar today? She's changing his word, altering what God said to accommodate what she wants to believe or what she wants to think. She is even believing the lie that there is no absolute standard to which she has to conform. 
She's convinced herself that it's not as absolute as God said it was, and that she probably won't die because this creature told me so. That's just a thinking process, but it goes beyond that. That's, that's where the seduction starts coming in. Look at verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. So, this, so the change of mind has already taken place. But what's in her mind has to work into her emotions in order to activate then her will to actually take the fruit. And that's what's taking place here. The process explain, is explained actually very clearly in James chapter 1, verse 14. Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and entice as seduction, right? You see, we, we move from thinking to feeling, from mind to emotion. We have a thought, and we let that thought begin to move and seduce us through our evil desire. And then verse 15, there in James, says, Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So there's a sequence. It goes from the mind to the emotion to the action. Now, in her mind, her goal has changed. This is a huge change. Up to this point, the goal of Eve in life was to glorify God. And that's the perfect goal, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's glorifying God completely. That's the fulfilling of the whole law. That's perfect righteousness. And that's all she had wanted to do. There there was never any thought about self-satisfaction or self-fulfillment. There was never any thought about personal pleasure or personal gain. Those thoughts didn't exist. Now, however, there's a new thought in her mind because she's accepting that thought. Selfishness, self-fulfillment. Not only is that her thought, that becomes her goal. Her goal has changed. It is now, I want to have the satisfaction that that tree will bring me. And what that tree will bring me is to be like God and know good and evil. I want that. I will have that. That desire is the same desire that Satan had all the way back in heaven before he was thrown out. Isaiah chapter 14 uh, starting in verse 12, it says, how, how you have fallen from heaven, morning star. Talking about Satan. Son of the dawn, you have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. Listen, you said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But, God said there in Isaiah, you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. Same thing was happening with Eve. Self-fulfillment has taken over from the consuming love for God. She's already sinned in her mind, and now the sin is, is going to work on her emotionally. It's going to conceive, and it's going to bring forth evil, disobedient behavior, and that will produce death in exactly the pattern of James chapter 1. This is self-seduction. This is where the feelings follow the mind. 
Look how the seduction unfolds in verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. Okay, that, that's, that's not intellectual. She's being seduced by her physical appetite and her emotions. First of all, she looks and sees this as good fruit. This is good. Do you think she was hungry? Do you think she was starving there in the garden and had to eat something? No, there was plenty of food. All the good food in the garden was at her fingertips. There was food everywhere. But she had come to believe that there was something satisfying in this fruit that she had never enjoyed in any other way. And folks, that is lust. That is the emotions following the mind. And now she begins to feel the desire for satisfaction, the taste, the flavor of this fruit that this fruit could bring. Not only does she see that the fruit is good for food, but it delights. It is a delight to the eyes. There's a certain emotion that's continuing on there. It's good to eat, and it looks so good. Have you ever been there? <laughs> that dessert, right? Those horrible desserts. They look so good, and they taste so good. And the more you look at, the more you want it. The more you think about it, the, the greater the desire comes. And then you start reasoning with yourself, right? Ever been there? I have. Because your emotions for that item, that dessert, that new boat, that new outfit, that new car, become so strong. You know, just a sliver, just a bite, not, that's not going to add that extra pound. And we reason with ourselves into doing it, whatever that it may be. And that's what Eve was doing here. She saw that it was good. It excited her eyes and her desires and her senses. Then she reasoned her way into it. She convinced herself that it was good for herself. It's going to bring wisdom. It was desirable for gaining wisdom. Of course she should do it. I mean, it would be foolish not to, right? Who would reject wisdom? This has, that, this has emotional power. I want that. And what's happening is her imagination is shaping her sin. It's con conceiving sin in her. That's depicted so graphically in the film The Lord of the Rings in the transformation of the character Smeagol to Gollum when he becomes so obsessed with having that ring. Now I point these three things out because it's really important for us to understand. These are the same three approaches that Satan still uses which are described in 1 John chapter 2. Listen, for everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. Did you hear that? Everything in the world, the whole evil system, the whole evil cosmos of Satan. Satan is in charge, the whole satanic system. The whole thing can be summed up in these three categories, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And that's what he used on Eve. She saw the tree was good for food. That's the lust of the flesh. She saw that it was a delight to the eyes. That's the lust of the eyes. 
And she saw that the tree was desirable to make one wise. That was a pride of life. It's for her betterment. Satan tried the same thing on Jesus out there in the wilderness when he came to Jesus after 40 days of fasting. If you're the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. In that case, Jesus was hungry 40 days. It's the lust of the flesh. Then he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and said, I'll give you all this, this whole domain. That's the lust of the eyes. Then he took him to the pinnacle of the temple and told him to jump off because he's so important that the angels will catch him. It's the pride of life. And what happens is the mind begins to distrust God, begins to question God, begins to question God's word. And then it begins to work in the emotion. And as we look at the temptation, as we look at the sin, it begins to work its way down into our imagination and we begin to conceive it by thinking and dwelling on it. How much it will satisfy the flesh, how much it will satisfy the eyes, how much better we'll, we'll look in the eyes of, of, uh, of others or how, how much better I'm going to feel about myself. And the sin is conceived. That brings us to the fourth point, the act of the sin, in verse 6. She took some and ate it. Not really surprising after all that, is it? It went from the mind to the emotions, and the emotions overpowered the will, and the will then produced the behavior. And then it simply says, she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Now all of a sudden, Adam's there. Where was he when she needed him? One thing that we know is that he wasn't there during the temptation, during the deception, because it says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14, very clearly, Adam was not the one deceived. It was a woman who was deceived. He wasn't there during that process of the deception. And I believe Satan waited and looked for an opportunity to get, to get Eve away from under the protection of her husband when she would be more vulnerable and therefore more susceptible to his deception. And I believe that if Adam had been there, I'm not saying that they wouldn't have done it, but I believe if Adam had been there, he probably would have been in on the written conversation that's recorded in Scripture, and the two would have been stronger together. Two are always stronger together. But Eve made the decision on her own, and she sinned, then took the sin to Adam, and Adam decided to obey his wife rather than God, and therein lies his sin. Now, here's an interesting question. Why did Adam go ahead and eat it if he knew it was wrong? The answer? We don't know. Can only speculate, maybe because she had eaten it and she wasn't dead yet, right? That God said you're going to die. But death did, death did happen. Spiritually, their spirit died at the moment that they were separated from God. The moment sin took place. Remember a little later on when God was walking in the cool evening in the garden? Couldn't find Adam and Eve. Had to call out, Adam, where are you? They were separated and were hiding because of sin and guilt. And physically, that was the moment that death began in the bodies as our cells began to die, which eventually led to physical death. 
Well, did, that, did the fact that Eve sinned first lessen Adam's guilt? No, not at all. In fact, whenever you look at scriptures in other passages, it always holds Adam accountable, not Eve. 1 Corinthians 15, 22, For as Adam all die. Eve has a tremendous amount of guilt, no question, but so does Adam. Eve was deceived by the serpent through the whole process, but Adam then joined in the sin for reasons or explanations for which we don't know. But both of them disobeyed God. So why doesn't it say, as in Eve, all died? She was the first one, right? Because there's a principle of headship in the Bible. Starts with Adam and it never ends. And it works in marriage just as well as it works in the Trinity, and it works in the church. There's a principle of headship. The husband is the head. First Corinthians chapter one, verse thir- uh, excuse me, First Corinthians chapter eleven, verse three, is very clear. But I want you to realize, Paul says, that the head of every man is Christ. The head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. And because of that principle that God has laid down, Adam then becomes the responsible one. By God's design, headship is in the man. The man then bears the responsibility. That in itself is a whole separate topic for us as men and husbands and fathers. We have been given the responsibility of the spiritual headship of the family But there are so many men who have abdicated that responsibility and either given it to their wives because they're not willing to take it on themselves or they've allowed their wives to take it because they're just, I don't know, lazy. (laughs) Either way, it's not God's design and there are consequences when we don't follow God's design in any aspect. And God will hold us as men responsible. God held Adam responsible for the sin of mankind. At that point, the whole human race then is plunged into evil. Whenever you refer back to that event, we always refer to Adam. Because Adam was the head. And it takes the work of the last Adam to undo it. And we're going to be talking about that next time. But at that point, sin enters the world, and with it comes death, spiritual death, physical death, eternal death. The very nature of mankind has changed from good to evil. And because Adam and Eve's very nature changed, the same sinful nature that has been passed down from generation to generation. It's not just the act that took place. I didn't didn't eat the, the fruit. They did. It's the nature that changed. And we can't change our nature ourselves. Paul tells us, In Romans 5, he talks about this over and over again, uh, about uh, the sin being passed down from one man. In verse 15, Romans 5, many died by the trespass of one man. Verse 16, the judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. Verse 17, by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through through that one man. Verse 18, one trespass resulted in condemnation of all people. Verse 19, through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners. That's that transformation of the, God, God, the godly pure nature into the sinful nature. But the flip side, of course, which is really 
what Paul's talking about in that passage is focused on uh, emphasizing, by comparison, the second Adam, what the second Adam did. Jesus, he changed all that, and through him, we now have a new nature. Again, same chapter, verse 15. How much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the, by, by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Verse 16, God's gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. Verse 17, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Verse 18, but one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. Verse 19, through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. We sung about God's grace. It's all there. That's the comparison between the act of the first Adam and the act of the second Adam. That's why it can only be Jesus Christ who can transform this old sinful nature of ours into the new nature that is now acceptable to God. Just as we fell in one man, we rise again in one man, the second Adam, Jesus Christ. Well, that leads us to our last point, which is the shame. The shame. We go from seducer to strategy to seduction to the sin, and then comes the shame. This is kind of interesting, actually. Verse 7, Then the eyes of both of them were open. What did they see? Well, they saw nakedness. Yes, but that's not what their eyes were open to. They had seen nakedness for quite some time now, without shame. That was nothing new. What their eyes were open to was the evil that they had not experienced before. That's what they saw. They were now aware of the wickedness and the guilt and shame that separates was overwhelming. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. I believe there was both a physical and a spiritual separation that took place at that moment. The physical had to do with themselves. What's the most intimate act that can take place in a husband-wife relationship? It's a sexual relationship. The two shall become one. There's nothing closer in a relationship than that. That's, that intimacy, that closeness at that point was broken. And they hid those intimate parts then from each other with fig, tree, uh, fig leaves. Then there was also a spiritual separation from God. There was no longer that intimate, close relationship with Him. The, and, and verse 8 tells us that they hid themselves from God. It's because that separation took place. An Old Testament scholar by the name of Bruce Waltke wrote this in his commentary on Genesis. With an awareness of guilt and a loss of innocence, the couple now feels shame in their naked state. Their spiritual death is revealed by their alienation from one another, symbolized by sowing fig leaves together for barriers, and by their separation from God, symbolized by hiding among the trees. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves some kind of aprons or or loin coverings in a feeble 
self-effort to cover their shame and cover their guilt. They could cover their bodies, but they couldn't really hide their sin. But there's a beautiful picture that, uh, of the one who can in verse 29 there in Genesis 3. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. In order for God to make them a garment of skin, what did God have to do? He had to kill an animal. First time. No animal had been killed up to that point. And if you think about about it, that was a first sacrifice to provide a covering for guilt and sin. And the analogy, of course, would be that if if I sin, I I can do everything I can uh, in my own power to try to cover up my sin and guilt. But in the end, we can only be covered by God through sacrifice. And He did it with a perfect sacrifice that covered our sin forever. Amazing grace. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, first four verses, Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who, who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Amazing passage. So did God really say, I can fix this? Yeah, He did. Because He is a good God. And He is good all the time. And we're going to take a look at that next time. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, this morning, even what took place there in Genesis Chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, did not come as a surprise to you. You already had your plan set. You already knew. You knew how you could bring us back. You knew how to cover our sin. And you already had in mind that you were going to send your son. Amazing grace. Father, I pray that we will have a greater understanding of the horribleness of sin and what that does to us and and how that process works through our being from thinking to our emotions and the emotions grabbing holding of of, of our will and we act act it out. And then what what the horrible consequences of that is. Father, in understanding that to a greater depth, I pray that our understanding of your grace and your love and your mercy will just overwhelm us to the point where we want to and have a desire to and we make efforts to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Father, we praise you and glorify you today. In Jesus' name, amen.